Father in heaven, we're asking that you would speak to our hearts. We're asking for a special revelation of Jesus, that Jesus would be lifted up, that we would behold the Lamb of God this morning, and that we would be changed in seeing Jesus. Lord, many of us have been Christians for years, but we pray this morning that you would bring salvation to our hearts in a fresh and living way, that it would be so much more real than we have ever experienced before. This can only happen through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we just give you full permission. We just yield our hearts to be spoken to by you. And we ask for the strength to follow that which you teach us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The book of Revelation portrays some real challenges for the people of God, some real things that they face in order to overcome. But then at the end, I love the picture that it portrays of God's people having actually overcome. Let's look at one of those pictures. There's many of them in the book of Revelation, but go with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we'll jump down to verse 6. Here, John sees in vision and he hears in vision a group who has overcome, who's finally there on the sea of glass, who's finally at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of many thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here John sees this group who comes together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all because of Jesus. But as they come together, he sees them and they're clothed. What are they clothed in? They're clothed in fine linens, like when you see your bride coming down the aisle. Now let me tell you, the day when I saw Leah come through the back doors of Hillcrest Church and I saw her come arrayed in her wedding dress. I had seen her actually earlier because we took some photographs before the wedding actually took place. So I'd already seen the dress. But there's just something about knowing that there comes your bride and she's coming because she wants to live the rest of her life with you. It brought me to tears. And I'm not always a person that cries much, but to see her coming down the aisle was something that moved my heart to the core. I can only imagine what it's like here in Revelation, what it's going to be like at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride has made herself ready. She's wearing fine linens. And what are those fine linens made up of? What are the white robes that are again and again portrayed in Revelation? The righteous acts of the saints. Now, is that a little intimidating to you? Because if I look at my life and I think about living my life for God, and I think about if my actions have made some kind of garment for my life, rather than some white garment that's bright and shining, I see myself more like what it says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, where it says, that all of their righteousness is like filthy rags. 
As, as I think about all that makes up the actions of my life, I, I don't see myself as one who is clothed in white linen and bright and shining with these righteous acts. So I want to be there on that day. How can I make sure that I'm a part of that group who's standing on the sea of glass at the marriage supper of the Lamb wearing bright white linen? Go with me to Revelation chapter 7. And Revelation chapter 7, I believe, gives us a key that we already heard briefly in our scripture reading. Revelation chapter 7, and we'll go to verse 9. This is right after it talks about the 144,000. The 144,000 is a, a group that is largely symbolic in the way that it's described. Some of the tribes that are listed there, it's different from the tribes that you find in the Old Testament. It's made up of even numbers, 12,000 and, and uh times 12,000 would make 144,000. It's a, a very interesting symbol of God's people who have overcome. But the good news is what John hears in verse 9. Because I might think about it, well, if there's a literal 144,000, how could I ever be a part of that group? How would it be possible for me to be there on that day? Because I'm sure that there's 144,000 people out there who have walked closer to Jesus than me in history. Well, look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Friends, there's not only going to be 144,000 people saved, but there's going to be a number which no person can number of saved human beings in heaven. A great number, a multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the, land, the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with, there it is again, white robes. Now, what do white robes represent? The righteous actions of the saints. They're clothed with these white robes. Here it is again. And having, or with palm branches in their hands. Now, the palms were something that they would raise as a sign of victory. It was a, a, a um, like when Jesus came in the he came marching into to Jerusalem. They waved palm branches as this was like a victory march for Jesus. So they have white robes with palm branches, but notice what they're crying out. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to who? Our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever." And ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, and this is the question that we've been asking, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? I lived on planet earth. Where in the world do all of these beautifully clothed people come from? With these white garments that represent their righteous actions. Where does that possibly come from? How could there be human beings that are like a great multitude like that in heaven? How is this even possible? Well, the answer comes, verse 14. I said to him, this is John. The angel asked him the question and John says to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Smyrna was warned that they would face great tribulation. If they were faithful unto death, they would receive the crown of life. And notice this. And washed their robes and made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They will neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What makes their robes so bright and shining? What gives them these righteous acts? They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's what our scripture reading said in Revelation 12 and verse 11. It says, and they overcame him by, what are the things that they overcame him by? Let's look at it. Revelation 12 and verse 11. Does they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They were faithful unto death. They had an experience with Jesus. They had a testimony. They knew Jesus. And their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. They overcame the enemy. As you face the last days, as you face this battle with the dragon, where the dragon has come down and he's especially wroth with the children of men on earth, with a remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, how can you know that you're going to overcome? It's by the blood of the Lamb. You know, in the Bible, it gives us an interesting picture periodically, and that is of a cup that represents human experience. Now, in Psalm chapter 23, you remember where it talks about a cup in Psalm chapter 23? It says, David says, And my cup runneth over. My experience in life when Jesus is my shepherd, when I'm following the shepherd, my cup overflows. Again, you find in other places in the Bible where they drink the dregs of the cup or they, this, their experience is not so good. They're going to cisterns that are, uh, cannot hold water to drink rather than to the one who has living water. So in a way, we can say that each of our experience is like a cup. We start off in our lives and there can be a lot of good things in our lives. And God intends for us to have an abundant life. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that the thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. Now the life that Jesus gives is sweet, like 100% Sparkling grape juice. It's delicious. I see your mouths watering right now. The life as Jesus intends for it to be is sweet. There's no sadness with it. There's no death with it. This is what Jesus intended from the very beginning. This is what he intended for Adam and Eve to experience. But there's a problem. A lot of times in my life, I think that I know better than Jesus knows. I think that I have some better plans than he does. And sometimes I decide to mix in some things that are actually don't seem that bad, but they just kind of distract from that life that Jesus really intended for. And it just makes life a little, a little less appetizing. But, you know, you can actually still drink it. And definitely soy milk and grape juice don't go together the best, but... You know, you can add things into your life that maybe aren't part of God's plan. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. It's beginning to not 
be so sweet anymore. But, you know, life experience takes us down a lot of different paths. Some things in life end up just going bad. I love bananas. A lot of you know that. But when a banana sits on the counter a little too long, and a lot of you know that I like ripe bananas, but this is definitely a little too ripe. So we'll, you know, sometimes we just begin adding things into our life experience that really have a little bit of a sour flavor to them, a little, little rotten. But you know, you probably still could drink that and it would be okay. I'm not because I'd like for my wife to want to be around me after this. But life experience can, can get pretty rotten as we begin to think that we have the right way, but little by little it leads us down sour paths. Now, this past week, I don't, well actually before that, you know, any good drink, you should add olives to it, I've heard. <laughs> now, we were given these olives and we weren't able to eat them all. Now, these were hand-cured, they had... Um, they were specially made, but you know, if something sits in a jar a little too long, there's some white stuff that begins to develop with it, and even good things in our lives turn bad. And this, you know, is my experience. I remember growing up that I, I loved doing uh, a lot of sports and activities and fun things in life, but pretty soon these things became my obsession in life. And when these became my obsession in life, little by little they detracted from the life that God really wanted me to live. And yet I kept feeling empty anyways. My cup didn't really seem that appetizing. I didn't really enjoy drinking from it anymore. And so I began to turn to other things that were quite a bit more harmful. This past week, I went out to uh, work on the, the yard. And, you know, grass hadn't been growing much, so I hadn't really used our... Uh, our green waste been in a while. And I don't know if it was somebody that came to visit or what happened, but somehow back last summer, a couple garbage bags of regular trash had been thrown into our green waste bin. I didn't know this. I just opened it up and was looking in, and then all of a sudden, the smell that came out was like death. It was quite terrible. And as I looked down in there, I said, what is that? So I grabbed these trash bags out, put them in the regular trash can, and then I looked in the bottom of the trash can. It was quite amazing what was surviving down there. I don't know if you've had maggots before in your trash can, but these are some kind of grubs like I used to feed to my chameleon. And they were growing in, in, uh, in our trash can, so I'll add that to the cup here. If you could smell this. Oh, we're going to need a utensil for this. Let's add this in. Now, can I get a volunteer who'd like to come drink this cup? Don wants some? Okay, how about Gabe? Would you come up and drink my cup for me? I need a brave young man. <laughs> you know, this is the thing I found in my life. As I started to party in high school, I started to try to fund find a fun time on my own. You know the feeling when you've hurt a lot of people, when you've made a lot of mistakes, and things just begin to go wrong in life, you begin to feel really guilty inside. That peace 
is gone. That joy is gone in your life no longer looks like something that you are proud of. It no longer looks like something appetizing. It's no longer a cup that's overflowing like Psalm 23 talks about. It's pretty messed up. Well, you know what the Pharisees did. Jesus talked about them. He said, you cleanse the outside of the cup. So they would take and they would say, well, our life is pretty messed up, so I'm going to follow these rules and I'm going to fix my life by scrubbing the outside of my cup. So they would take and they would fix up the outside, they would come to church, they would dress up, they would pay their offerings and return tithe faithfully. And then they would show everybody how nice their cup looked. And Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup because you think that this is going to help, but first clean the inside, and then, then the outside will become clean. Well, a lot of times in my life I say, well, mom, dad, I think I'm going to go to a Bible study with my friends. And, you know, after the Bible study, I'd be going out to party, but I was trying to fix my life, so... You know, just add the soap straight inside, just like Jesus talked about. Maybe that'll help. It's even uh, biodegradable, cuts the grease, lemon-scented soap. Does anybody want to drink my cup now? It has soap in it. I'm sure it killed most of the bacteria from the grubs. But I began to make choices in my life, and I think most of us have, that become more and more really damaging. Begin to put things into my body that were pretty damaging and could have killed me, really. And eventually, the cup isn't just disgusting anymore, but it becomes something deadly, something that you wouldn't want to drink, something that could actually cause death. But we continue to try to find stronger things in our lives, find ways to fix it. We try to keep the commandments, we try to follow Jesus more strictly, we try to do all these different things. If at all possible, we've got to fix our cup. We've got to fix our lives because we've got this guilt in our life. And maybe if we do enough good things, it'll outweigh the terrible mistakes that we've made in our life. So maybe we could add some bleach in and see if this helps our cup out. See if anybody wants to drink it after that. Don't worry, Ellen, I won't spill this on the carpet. Okay. Does anybody want to drink the cup now? I think it may have a little bit less of the dark color in it. Maybe the bleach helped a little bit. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, you can't get rid of the guilt in your life on your own. You can't make up for all the people that you've hurt. You can't make amends for all the mistakes of your life. It's simply not possible. But as we read in Matthew chapter 1 in Sabbath school, at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. He was born of a virgin named Mary. He was born by the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus lived his life, it tells us that he grew in wisdom 
and in favor with God and man. Jesus never made any mistakes. In fact, when he came to Pilate at the end, he was able to say, if you can find anything wrong in me, or that he, he ended up telling the disciples, the enemy has nothing in me. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. Jesus' cup truly did overflow. That's why he was able to tell the disciples in John 15 that I wish that my joy, I, I say these things, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Jesus' joy was full. And that's a good cup to drink from. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus had no guilt. You know the feeling that comes when you've messed up, when you've hurt people, when you've made mistakes and your life is filled with guilt and shame. Jesus didn't know that. Jesus never made the mistakes that you and I make. And his life was perfect. And here's the beautiful thing. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus comes to the disciples and they have that room, upper room experience in Matthew chapter 26. Go with me there to Matthew chapter 26. In verse 26, as they were eating, this was the service of the Passover lamb. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then verse 27, he says, then he took the cup. I don't know whether it was white grape juice or red grape juice, but he took that cup of real grape juice there that was just sitting at the the table with the disciples. They're having a real Passover meal there together. And Jesus grabs that cup off the table. And he takes that cup and he says this to them. Drink from it. All of you, drink from it. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Can you imagine the thoughts going through the disciples as that cup is passed around? They knew the whole sacrificial system and and how the blood represented the life and how you would go into the the sanctuary and you'd confess your sins on that spotless lamb and then His blood would be shed and captured in a bowl for your sins and taken into the sanctuary. They knew that whole ceremony. They knew about the Passover story where the the father had to go outside and take the blood on hyssop and, and put it on the door frame of the house. And anybody in the house was safe from the destroyer so long as they had the blood of the lamb. They knew these stories. They knew these symbols. They participated in them from the time they were children. But now Jesus takes it to a whole new level. He says, drink my blood. Drink it yourselves. Enjoy this life that I have lived for you. What an incredible thing Jesus did. And it's more incredible because of what it cost him. Because if you keep reading in Matthew 26, if we go down to verse 36, they get to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two of 
the sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. What's going on for Jesus? Why is he suddenly sorrowful? Here they'd had this amazing feast together. They remember the Passover, but Jesus is burdened beyond what a human being can understand. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. What's going on for Jesus? Why is Jesus suddenly so burdened, so filled with this angst? What is happening to Jesus? We get a little picture of it in verse 39. And he went a little farther and he fell on his face. And he prayed, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus was facing the sins of the entire world. The entire world's sins were there in a cup before him. And as he looked at that cup and he saw the mistakes that I made and all the people that I'd hurt and he knew the guilt, he knew the shame, he knew all the foolish decisions that I made and he looked at that cup and said, that is going to hurt. He knew that Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says that sin separates us from God. So he looked at that cup and said, Father, is there any other way that I could possibly save Zach than to drink that cup because I'd really like it that way. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Three times he prayed this. And Luke portrays how as he was praying this, at one point he fell almost as a man dead to the ground and an angel had to come and strengthen him. As he looked at this, as he thought about the separation that it would create from his father, as he thought about all the feelings you have ever felt because of the sins you have committed. As he looked at that, it was almost too much for him. He began to sweat great droplets of blood. But praise Jesus. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And Jesus drank your cup. It tells us in 1 John 1 and verse 7 that we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. 1 Peter chapter 1 also tells us that we're redeemed not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of a spotless lamb. You, my friends, can wear a white robe if you will have your robe washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus drank this cup so that you and I could drink this cup. And it's good. Jesus says, my experience is something that I want for you. I want the joy that I have in my life to be a part of your life. I want the peace that I have in my life to be a part of your life. And Jesus went to the cross. All of your sins were laid on him. He laid down his very life for you in drinking your cup so that you could drink freely from the cup of salvation. But the question is, why don't I drink more from this cup? Because I find in my life 
I do one of two things, and you've probably experienced this too. On the one hand, I think, well, I've got to make my life better, and I do everything possible to make this cup more palatable, and I think that before I come to Jesus, I somehow have to make myself better, and I'm still trying to drink from this cup, and it's terrible, it's disgusting, it's despicable, and yet I keep drinking from it, keep trying to make it palatable. And Jesus is saying, 1 John 1 and verse 9, if you confess your sins... I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Only I can cleanse your cup for you. Only I can give you a brand new start. That's one of two mistakes, not coming to Jesus. But then there's the other one where I think, well, I came to Jesus. I said a prayer once and I, I accepted His salvation and now I'm good. So I'm going to keep drinking from both cups. I'm going to keep on living my life of sin. I'm going to keep on in this way because I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb so it doesn't really matter anymore. I'm just going to keep drinking from this cup. But none of you really want to drink from this cup. You know the pain that it causes to drink from this cup. You know that this cup is full of suffering. And yet the enemy lies to us. He tells us that, hey, if you look at that that pornography... It's going to make you a little happier. And don't worry, you can confess your sins to Jesus later. And then once we do, he tries to burden us to fill us with guilt so that we don't want to go back to Jesus. He tells us that if we just fudge a little bit on our taxes, or if we just do these different things in our life that we think is really going to provide for us to help us out, we'll just drink a little bit from this cup, but we'll still have Jesus. But Hebrews chapter 6 says, Once you've tasted of this cup, don't go on drinking from this cup because in doing that, you're just crucifying Jesus afresh because Jesus died. He took that. And every sin that I commit is something that He had to bear. And if I love Jesus, then I'm not going to want to drink that cup anymore. In the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, it describes the experience that Jesus went through in Gethsemane. And as I look at my loving Savior and I realize what He had to go through for me, it makes me never want to drink from that old cup of sin anymore. Testimonies, Volume 2, page 203 says, As the Son of God bowed in the attitude of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony of His Spirit forced from His pores sweat like great drops of blood. It was here that he, the horror of great darkness surrounded Him. The sins of the world were upon Him. He was suffering in man's stead as a transgressor of His Father's law. He experienced all the guilt, all the shame, and all the penalty that you and I deserve. Continues, and He had taken the cup of suffering. He took it from the lips of guilty man and proposed to drink it himself, and in its place to give man the cup of blessing. The wrath that would have fallen upon man was now falling upon Christ. It was here that the mysterious cup trembled in his hands. But praise God, worthy is the Lamb because he drank your cup. Every mistake you've ever made in your life, every sin that you have committed, Jesus took it all. He bore it all on the cross. And He asked today, will you simply confess your sins? Will you accept my forgiveness? And will you allow me to cleanse you, to give you victory from all 
unrighteousness so that you too can wear a robe of white. That you can be clothed in the righteous actions, not your own righteous actions, but the righteous actions of Jesus. And they are sweet. They taste good. That's really what communion is all about. It's about accepting the life of Jesus Christ. It's to remind us, to bring to our remembrance the life which He lived so that we too can have a life like Jesus had. So that we can have the eternal life that Jesus alone deserved. I don't know where you're at today. It could be that you've been drinking far too long from this cup and today you're realizing that for the first time you want to accept Jesus' free gift of salvation. You want to confess your sins and ask Jesus into your heart and say, I want the cup of blessing. Or maybe today you realize, you know, I've been drinking from the cup of salvation, but I've been trying to double dip. I've been trying to drink from both cups. I've been having a little of my way and a little of the world's way, and I'm sick of it. It just leaves me feeling empty. It just leaves me feeling so guilty. In 1 John 2 and verse 1, right after saying that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sin, John writes, These things I have written to you so that you may not sin. The purpose of this gift of salvation is to lead us away from sin, to save us from our sins. And then it goes on to say, And if we sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. His goal for you is no more of that cup. And when that's your goal in life, when you're allowing His blood to cleanse you, when you're living a life that's no longer for yourself, but for the one who died for you, and you slip up, the enemy comes in and and deceives you into that sin, just go back to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Confess that sin again and keep claiming the promise that if you confess your sins, He'll forgive you and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As I pray, I just want to invite you, if God is speaking to your heart this morning, telling you, hey, I want to have you experience this cup of salvation. I want you to experience washing in the blood of the Lamb. I want the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all your sin. I want to invite you to kneel with me as I pray. Father, we kneel before you not because of any righteousness in us, but because worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we've spent too much of our lives drinking from the wrong cup. But we're longing to be flooded with the grace of Jesus that comes because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Would you please pour out that grace in our hearts? Lord, this morning we want to confess our sins. We want to confess specifically any sin that has separated us from you, Father. We want to ask for complete forgiveness. We want to ask for complete cleansing from all unrighteousness. Thank you so much, Jesus, for drinking my cup, for drinking the cup that I should have had to drink so that I can experience the abundant life that you lived so we could have. Father, 
May we experience your salvation in a fuller and more abundant way day by day. And as we go through this communion service, may it remind us of Jesus and the infinite price that he paid so that we could have abundant and eternal life. May this be forefront on our minds as we go through this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.